Of course, we know that Jeremiah had a, really a heartbroken ministry. You know, it's interesting, all of these, uh, the books of prophecy, all these heroes of our faith uh, that we honor and we should, but by and large, most of their ministries we would not consider uh, overly successful. The irony is that the one prophet who had an overwhelmingly successful ministry, by our viewpoint, uh, would have been Jonah. And he was the one that didn't want it to happen. You know, he went to Jericho, or excuse me, went to Nineveh, and didn't want them to repent. He was hoping God would judge them. Uh, and, uh, of course, ultimately, that was the greatest, one of the greatest revivals, I guess, recorded in all of Scripture. But uh, Jeremiah preached for 40 years, preached faithfully as God had called him, preached repentance to Judah and Jerusalem. And we would say that his ministry, uh, if we were counting numbers, was largely unsuccessful. As a matter of fact, because he was preaching that judgment was coming and that they were to submit to this judgment because God's hand was in it, he was accused of being a traitor to Israel. So the reality was he was one of the most faithful patriots of Israel all time, was a committed uh, honorable man, faithful to do what God had called him to do, and was hated by his own peer group and his own countrymen as a result. Of course, three of what we call the major prophets were um, lived at the same time, and their ministries were concurrent. And this is a significant time in Bible prophecy, because this was after a thousand years of being brought out of captivity in Egypt, after being warned in Leviticus and rewarned in Deuteronomy of what would happen if they were disobedient and took their eyes off of God and fell off into idolatry. Well, everything that God warned them would happen, in fact, was about to happen. And you had the prophets leading up to this time of captivity, warning them of what was to come. And then we have the post-exile prophets like uh, Zechariah and Haggai and uh, Malachi and others. But uh, here these three guys were there simultaneously in three different uh, important locations, bringing the same message as God was judging Jerusalem. Now, we think of the fall of Jerusalem as one battle, but it really wasn't. It was over a period of 19 years. Of course, the first time that Jerusalem surrendered without a fight was when Daniel and some two, 3,000 of the, um, oh, I guess the well-connected uh, men from inside the priesthood. You had men from inside the uh, royal family, and some of the significant leaders of Jerusalem were taken captive, and many of them integrated into Nebuchadnezzar's uh, cabinet. Of course, we know Daniel, we know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These were those that went in the first captivity. After about 10 years, they fell again. They, uh, the uh, king, Jehoiachin, uh, Jehoiakim and his son Jehoiachin had ceased paying tribute. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar was going to bring them back into line and uh, again sent troops and also used some of the surrounding natural enemies of Israel to uh, begin to lay siege to the city, and the city of Jerusalem surrendered again without a fight. This time was when Ezekiel and about 10,000 craftsmen, upper middle class, small business owners, and the like were taken back to Babylon uh, as prisoner. 
And then finally, about 10 years later, the cycle repeated itself. Again, they stopped paying tribute. This time, a siege was laid. It was a horrible, gruesome siege. Literally, Jerusalem was starved out and weakened for about 18 months. And then finally, the city fell. The temple was, was uh, burnt, and not one stone was left upon another. Uh, it was a, a horrible experience being inside the city. And, of course, Jeremiah was there for all of that inside the city. In fact, he was imprisoned for much of that time. He was hated so. Now, chapter 30 and 31 comes right here at the tail end of Zedekiah's reign. Literally, at this point, you remember uh, in our studies in the past weeks, the city of Jerusalem was surrounded at this point in time. And, of course, Jeremiah had been Mr., oh, I don't know, Debbie Downer, you might say, of his ministry. He's constantly warning of coming judgment. Well, now the judgment was there. Uh, only instead of preaching a message of condemnation, Jeremiah was told to preach a message of hope. And, of course, last week we only got through the first 11 verses. But in those 11 verses, we see that Jeremiah, again, you look outside the walls of the city, the city is surrounded by the Babylonians. Judgment was imminent. Inside the walls of Jerusalem, people were starving. Even in the book of Lamentations, it records that women were eating their own children because they were so uh, destitute of food and hungry. Well, at this point in time, Jeremiah preaches that God is going to keep his promises. Don't worry. At the end of the day, Israel, Isaac, or Israel will return to the land. In fact, more than that, uh, the seed of David would be returned to the throne and Israel would live in peace. Now, it's important that we remember those things have never happened yet from the time that the city finally fell. Uh, and there was no more lineage of David sitting on the throne of David. Although there has been a partial return and even a rebuilding of the temple uh, leading up to the time of Jesus, there has never been a time where Israel has been in peace, not in 2,500 years. There has never been a time since this point when Zedekiah was, was killed or was, was, has had his eyes put out and was taken hostage back to Babylon, when a member of the lineage of David has sat on the throne of David and ruled and reigned in righteousness. It just hasn't happened yet. In fact, not even close. So either we should conclude that God is not seriously speaking literally about these promises or we must conclude that it hasn't happened yet. Well, I fall into the latter category that it hasn't happened yet. So remember, we wrapped up last week, and there was the promised hope that there would be a return, there would be autonomy, there would be peace, and there would be a member of the lineage of David would rule and reign. Now we pick up in verse 12. For thus saith the Lord, thy bruise is incurable, and thy wound is grievous. There is none to plead thy cause that thou mayest be bound up. Thou hast no healing medicines. All thy lovers have forgotten thee. They don't seek thee. Uh, you know, as a, as a lover would pursue a lover, uh, they aren't there for you. For I, God says, have wounded thee with the wound of an enemy. God says, I am behind all of this. With the chastisement of a cruel one because of the multitude of thine iniquity, because thy sins have just continued to increase. And you cry in your affliction. 
Your sorrow is incurable because of all thine iniquity. Because thy sins have increased, I have done these things unto you. Again, the city is surrounded. God just gave that brief message of hope. And then he is reminding them of why they're about to experience the pain that they're going to experience. And he's also telling them that there is not going to be a last-minute rescue like there had been a hundred years earlier under the reign of Hezekiah. In fact, now there would be no cure. Judgment was certain, and the city was going to fall. Therefore, all they that devour thee shall be devoured. So again, we get some messages of hope. Now, I don't know how encouraging this would be. Okay, Judah, you're about to fall. Jerusalem, you're about to be destroyed. But don't worry, after they get done destroying you, I'm going to get even with them. Well, I guess there's some encouragement with that, but uh, take it for what it is. All thine adversaries, every one of them, shall go into captivity. They that spoil thee, they shall be spoiled. They that prey upon thee, I will give for a prey, for I will restore health unto thee. Now, again, we see some promises here. I will heal thy wounds, saith the Lord, because they call thee an outcast, saying, This is Zion, whom no man seeketh after. Well, what in the world is, is that talking about? Well, first of all, the observation by the Gentiles would be that the Jews have been abandoned by their God, that they are outcasts. And in fact, it was actually their God that was bringing this judgment upon them because of their disobedience. But in the Eastern mindset, the land was tied with the specific pagan deities. Therefore, in uh, Philistia, the Philistines had their own set of gods, and their gods were tied to their geographical location. In Edom, they had their own set of pantheon of gods that were tied to their location. In their mindset, the nation whose army was most powerful was a sign of that god or gods being more powerful than others. Well, Zion is going to be, Jerusalem is going to be so destroyed that it's going to appear that there is no God there, that their God is either weak or he is dead or he doesn't care. God says, verse 18, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring again the captivity of Jacob's tents, and I will have mercy on his dwelling places. The city shall be rebuilt on her own heap. This is an interesting statement. When you go to, to Israel... The archaeological digs, they call tells. And what they are, they appear to be heaps, just mounds of dirt. And when they start digging, they come across the structural remains of ancient cities which have been there. There is Tel Jericho, the mound of Jericho. There is um, 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 Tel Megiddo, the, the, the archaeological discovery marking the ancient city of Megiddo. Uh, there's Tel Aviv, which, of course, we're familiar with, which was named uh, in honor, but actually Tel Aviv was an original Jewish city not built until after the return uh, in somewhere around 1909. But what's interesting is that in all of these ancient locations where Israel was thriving 2,500 years ago, as the Jews have returned to the land, they have rebuilt modern cities in and around those ancient locations. And literally, this prophecy and others like it have been fulfilled literally. 
In fact, more than that, God said, I will have mercy upon thy dwelling places. I will bring thee back, and you will build your new cities on the location of your old cities. And even, notice the last part of verse 18, even the palace shall remain after the manner thereof. Well, what's the palace? Well, that was the home of the king. And out of them shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of them that make merry. And I will multiply them, being the, the, uh, the lineage of Israel. As they return to the land, they will have their restored uh, manner of living, their way of life, their, the happiness and joy of raising a family, giving in marriage, and everything that goes on in a normal life. And I will multiply them. And there won't be just a few of them. There will be many. I will also glorify them, and they shall not be small in number. We know this is going to happen. Paul in the book of Romans, reminds us, in fact, we'll get into this more in detail, that God doesn't change His mind. I'll wait. I'll, I'll, I'll dig into this later. I'm planning on getting this when I get to the end of this chapter. So let me just, for the sake of time, move on, and we will come back to that. I was about to chase, go down a trail, which is important, but I'll save it for later. Their children also shall be as aforetime. And their congregation shall be established before me. And I will punish all that oppress them. And their nobles shall be of themselves. And their governor shall proceed out of the midst of them. And I will cause him to draw near, and he shall approach unto me. And who is this that engaged his heart to approach unto me, saith the Lord? And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. There is so much there. Let me pause just for a moment. Recognize what's going on. Cities surrounded, they are about to go into bondage. We know that Daniel gave details on this length of bondage in Daniel chapter 2. It's called the times of the Gentiles. The times when Israel would not be self-governing, when they would not have their own king ruling and reigning over them. They would be subject as Daniel 2 points out, first to Babylonian rule, then to Medo-Persian rule, then to Grecian rule, then to Roman rule. And we know that in the last days before the kingdom of heaven is reestablished on earth, that there would be a brief period of global governance with ten kings ruling for a brief period of time. More is added to that in chapter 7, chapter 9, and then when you go into the, to the book of Revelation, there's even more added to it. But this is a promise that you will have your own people ruling over you again. And that expression, their governor, we think of that as in the governor elected to rule or to, to be the chief executive officer in the state of Oklahoma. In this state, the chief governor is, in fact, the king. In other words, your own governor shall proceed out of you as a people. It's not going to be Medo-Persian rule. It's not going to be Grecian rule. It's not going to be Herod, who was not a Jew. He was an Edomite. Your governor shall come out of your midst. And then in the B part of verse 21, we see something that you might read over unless you're looking for it. When God established Israel, the kings, well, ultimately they were a republic, a constitutional republic. But when they asked for a king, the king was of the lineage of Judah. Of what lineage was the priesthood? Levites. 
and they were separate. There were certain instances, for example, when Uzziah came in and sought to serve in the position of a priest, that God judged him harshly because it wasn't his job. But this one says that he, this governor, shall approach unto me, make intercession unto me. Well, again, under the law, that was forbidden because the lineage of Judah and the lineage of Levi were separate. But remember that Jesus, the psalmist says, is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, a king and priest. So this is a reference to the fulfillment of Jesus, the Messiah, as he is both king and priest. For who is this that engages his heart to approach unto me, saith the Lord, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Who is God addressing here? Literally. Who is he talking to? Israel. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. You can put it in the bank. It's going to happen. Literally. Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goeth forth with fury, a continuing whirlwind, and it shall fall with pain upon the head of the wicked. Now, again, we saw last week, and we've talked about it briefly this week. God was going to judge Israel because of her disobedience. She deserved every bit of this whipping she was going to get. But God was going to keep His promises that He had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We will see why as we go a little further in this lesson. God was also going to judge all those Gentile nations that had been enemies and were enemies of Israel. In fact, we saw in Ezekiel that they were going to cease to exist. Edom, Moab, Ammon, Philistia, Tyre, and Sidon. Israel would be punished harshly. They would be out of the land for a long time, as the Valley of Dry Bones tells us. Then they would be back in the land, standing as a mighty army, but there would be no spirit within them. They'd be physically present, but spiritually dead. I would say that that is where we are at today. They are physically present in the very same geographical location that they occupied 2,500 years ago. But they are spiritually dead. They are not truly self-governing. They don't have the king of the lineage of David ruling and reigning in righteousness over them. But I believe it will happen. The fierce anger of the Lord shall not return until He has done all this. In other words, He is not going to let up until He has completed what He has said He's going to do. And He had performed the intents of His heart. In the latter days, you shall see it clearly. You shall understand this, uh, Israel. And again, at this point in time, look outside the walls of the city. They are surrounded. Things look bleak. God is telling them, don't worry. Well, you've got a lot to worry about. But in the end, I'm going to keep my promises. At the same time, saith the Lord, will I be the God of how many? All the families of Israel. Again, as I've said in past week, there are no lost ten tribes. At the time of the separation, the Scripture tells us that those that wanted to be faithful to Yahweh moved south into the southern two states of Oklahoma and Texas, Benjamin and Judah. Those that wished to apostatize moved north into Illinois, New York, California figuratively. All right. Thus saith the Lord, the people which were left of the sword, 
those that survived this judgment found grace in the wilderness. Even Israel, even in fact, well, we're going to make some specific references. You're going to see exactly where God is talking about the 12 tribes versus the 10 tribes geographically. When I went to cause him to rest, the Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with what? An everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Again, I will build thee, and thou shalt be built, O virgin of Israel. Now again, certainly that is not a descriptive of the harlot Israel, the unfaithful wife of Jehovah. But that is a promise that one day you will be my pure virgin as I have called you to be. Thou shalt be adorned with symbols, or not symbols, but tambourines, celebrating and dancing. Think of times before when they got through the Red Sea. There was a time where the Song of Miriam, where they danced and celebrated and cheered unto the Lord. There will be another time similar, only greater than that. Thou shalt go forth in the dances of them that make merry. Thou shalt yet plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria. Now, why is that so important? Because right now, the southern kingdom was about to fall. At this point in time that this prophecy is being given through Jeremiah, the city of Jerusalem was surrounded. The northern kingdom had fallen to the Assyrians 150 years earlier. But God is saying, you shall rebuild, you shall replant in the mountains of Samaria. That would be the northern kingdom. In fact, you're not going to be taken out of the land. When judgment was coming, God said, you're going to plant, but somebody else is going to harvest and eat of your work. But this time is saying, you're going to plant and you're going to eat of it. The Jews. And there shall be a day that the watchmen upon Mount Ephraim shall cry. There were watchmen throughout the land. The chief watchmen were on the pinnacle of the temple looking for the new moon each month. There was a communication system that went throughout the 12 tribes geographically with either sounding of shofar being passed along or the lighting of bonfires on hilltops being passed along to give signs, so to speak. We have email today. They didn't then that the watchman upon the Mount Ephraim shall cry and say, Arise, let us go to Zion unto the Lord our God. Now again, remember, historically, after the kingdom divided, Jeroboam immediately went into idolatry because he didn't want his citizens of the northern ten tribes to return to Jerusalem for the annual holy days for fear that might, they might be drawn towards allegiance of the southern kingdom. Well, there will be a time where even the northern tribes will go to Zion, i.e. Jerusalem, unto the Lord our God. For thus saith the Lord, Sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations. Publish ye, praise ye, and say, O Lord, save thy people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them out of the north country. Now, I should have put a map up there. You all know that because of the fertile crescent, because of the Arabian desert, all of the attacks, whether it be the Assyrians, whether it be the Hittites, whether it be the Babylonians, it all came from the north. So when they were taken captive, they went north and ultimately went east. But I will bring them from the north country 
In fact, more than just that specific captivity, I will gather them from the coasts of the earth. In other words, from the extents of the earth. And with them, the blind and the lame and the woman with child and her that travaileth with child, a great company shall return thither. Say, Pastor, what's the point of that? Typically, when you conquered a country, you would take the finest of the country. Remember, during the first siege, first conquest of Babylon, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and just a couple of thousand were taken. They were the well-connected politically. They were the royal family and others. Remember in the second captivity when Ezekiel was taken, it was the craftsmen. It was the private business owners. In this case, we're not going to be selective. All of Israel will return, even the blind. Hey, if you're taking, if you've conquered a, a country and you're taking the finest, it won't be the blind and the lame. They're going to cause you expense in order to try to care for them. But see, the point being made here is that all are going to return ultimately. And they shall come with weeping, and with supplications I will lead them. And I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way wherein they shall not stumble. For I am the father to Israel, and Ephraim my firstborn." a reference to uh, the northern kingdom, uh, a reference to, do we need to, is it time to quit? Is that a phone or is that, is it time for me to stop teaching, John? Time for me to stop teaching. All right, stand and we'll be dismissed. All right. Hear the word of the Lord, O you nations, and declare it in the isles afar off and say, he that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. Think back a couple of chapters when Jeremiah came in wearing the yoke on his neck, talking about going off into bondage. There will be a time where they will be redeemed and rescued from those conquerors. Therefore, they shall come and sing in the Mount of Zion. And shall flow together to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and for wine and for oil and for the young of the flock of the herd and their soul shall be as, as a watered garden and they shall not sorrow any more at all. Talking of the plenty and promises that God had first made them when they went into the land of, of, of the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. Israel has never fully enjoyed all the promises as being the chief nation of planet earth. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, both young men and old together, for I will turn their mourning into joy and I will comfort them and will make them rejoice from their sorrow. And I will satiate the soul of the priests with fatness. Again, this is a, a, an idiom of, of blessing and abundance, both spiritually and materially. And my people shall be satisfied with goodness, saith the Lord. Okay, now notice how we're going back and forth to, from, okay, judgment is coming. Now they're surrounded. Judgment is here. Let me give you some words of encouragement. Then back to, but imminently you're going to face some judgment. Now back to some words of encouragement. We've just finished in verse 14 several verses of promised blessing and encouragement. Then in verse 15, we see a reminder of the imminent judgment. Thus saith the Lord, 
a voice was heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children. She could not be comforted because her children were not there. Now you see circled on the map the city of Ramah. This was north of Jerusalem. This was an area of deportation. The Jews were brought to Ramah. Then they were shipped off to captivity in Babylon and even other places. Well, obviously, the literal Peshat, the literal plain meaning here is that exactly what it was. After Jerusalem fell, this was going to be a place of weeping as the children of Israel were taken out and Rachel, the wife of Israel, the wife of Jacob, the beloved wife of Jacob, did not have children in the land. Now, it means something more than that as well. You remember in past weeks, we had talked about uh, Jewish hermeneutics. There are four ways to interpret a passage of Scripture, the Peshat, the Ramez, the Drosh, and the Sod. And we emphasize specifically plain truth, being the literal specific truth that we would read on our first reading, and then a hidden prophetic truth. Sometimes those are really hard to find. I gave you an example. Hosea 11.1, when Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. If you read that in context, it is clearly talking about God rescuing Israel out of bondage in Egypt at the hand of Moses. We would never suspect a prophetic truth if it wasn't that Matthew told us it was there. Matthew, with a rabbinical midrash, said, made application of this prophecy, Hosea 11.1, and said that that was actually speaking about Jesus. When Joseph was awakened in a dream and told to take Mary and the child to Egypt because Herod was going to be out for his life, and then after his return from Egypt, Matthew said, well, Hosea was talking about this case. I called my son out of Egypt. We have the plain truth speaking specifically about Israel coming out of bondage in Egypt, but we see a prophetic truth also in that very verse that was fulfilled by young Jesus being taken into Egypt until he grew a few years and Herod died. Well, we see the same thing here in Jeremiah 30. We just read verse 15. It says, Rachel, speaking of the nation of Israel, the mother of the Israelis, weeping because her children were no longer in the land. But Matthew again tells us a prophetic meaning of that passage of Scripture. Remember also when Herod was angry, believing that the wise men had deceived him, he sent his troops to Bethlehem to kill every child under the age, every male child under the age of two. And Matthew said that that fulfilled the prophecy of, notice verse 17, it quotes Jeremiah the prophet saying, In Ramah there was a voice heard of lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel. By the way, do you know where Rachel's tomb is? No, take a guess. Look up in verse 16. Bethlehem. Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they were not. So again, Jeremiah 30, verse 15, we see a literal, plain truth 
being the deportation of the uh, captives. And then we also see it was actually a prophetic truth as well, as was revealed to us by Matthew. Thus saith the Lord, Refrain thy voice from weeping and thine eyes from tears, Jeremiah. Remember, he was nicknamed the weeping prophet. Again, we're going to see a long-term, a, a, a prophetic fulfillment here. Your work shall be rewarded. Remember in chapter 1, God said that the enemies would not prevail against Jeremiah. Well, they didn't. Although Jeremiah's life, we would not say, was marked by numerical success. He was faithful. His enemies did not prevail over him. And in fact, Jeremiah's work would be rewarded, says the Lord. They shall come again from the land of the enemy. And there is hope in the end. Thy children shall come again to heaven. No, to their own border. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus, saying, this is the cry of the Jew. Thou hast chastised me, and I was punished. As a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke, as a bullock that doesn't want to be uh, guided or submit to guidance, turn thou me, and I shall be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. This indicates that there will be a time that Israel repents in their heart. Now, that was why Jeremiah was sent, remember? Jeremiah was sent to preach repentance, but his message was not heeded. And his generation, in fact, went into bondage. But God says, don't worry, Jeremiah. Your work will be profitable. It will come to fruition. There will be a time when disobedient Israel will submit. Verse 19, surely after that I was turned, I repented. After that I was instructed, I smote my thigh and I was ashamed. I would reference Zechariah 12 and 13, although we won't take time to look there now. When Israel recognizes the Messiah and they see that he was pierced, and then all of a sudden they're going to understand exactly what happened, it says they will be, there will be great mourning at that time, just as when Josiah was killed by um, uh, Pharaoh Necho, and there was mourning throughout Judah. There will be mourning at this yet future time at Armageddon when they recognize what they have done. I repented after that I was instructed. I smote my thigh. I was ashamed, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my pleasant child? For since I spake against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my heart is troubled for him. I will have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. God's heart, still tender, even in punishment. Set thee up waymarks, make thee high heaps. Set thine heart toward the highway, even the way which thou wentest, and turn again. Again, this isn't speaking of Israel currently, because Israel is the unfaithful wife of Jehovah at this point in time. It's why they're being punished. Yet in the future, they will be pure, and they will turn again into these cities. Have you ever heard the expression, leave a trail of breadcrumbs so you can find your way back? This is idiomatically a statement saying, mark the path of your leaving because you will be coming back in the other direction. How long wilt thou go about, O thou backsliding daughter? 
For the Lord hath created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall compass a man. Verse 22 is the most difficult verse in all of the book of Jeremiah. A woman shall encompass a man. There are three possible explanations for that. All three are, in fact, true, but there is debate over what is exactly specifically meant. And again, all three of them may have been intended. One could reference the virgin birth. One could reference, in fact, this word compass, a man. That word man is actually a mighty man. The idea, some conjecture, is that Israel will, in fact, pursue her God at some point in time. And then the idea also of there being a state of peace where it is no longer necessary for a man to stand guard and protect his family. When will that age of peace be? We saw last week that there will be a time where Israel no longer lives in fear. I am not aware of a time that has ever happened. Israel has always lived in fear to some extent. Since their return with Zerubbabel, they had the fear of being attacked by the Samaritans. While in bondage, they had the fear of being destroyed by Haman's plot to wipe out the Jew. Throughout these 2,000 years, as they have largely been a people without a country, They have never been at peace. The Jews are still one of the most hated peoples on earth. Now, you can put Christians up there with them, and we may be facing persecution to some degree even here in America. I hope not. But when you see what's happening just to our neighbor to the north, where you have a pastor arrested because he's having church, you can see that it is, in fact, a possibility But since Israel has been back in the land, May the 14th, 1948, Israel declared her independence, her declaration of independence, David Ben-Gurion, there in in Tel Aviv. Well, they were attacked within 24 hours. They've been at war ever since. They certainly aren't at peace yet. But there will be a time when Israel is back in the land, occupying their land with the king of the lineage of David, ruling and reigning over them. And at that same period of time will be what was prophesied in Isaiah 2 and Micah 4 and other passages where there will be no more war. Man will beat his swords into plowshares and his spears into pruning hooks. But that hasn't happened yet. As a matter of fact, right now, as we sit here, there have been over 2,500 rockets fired into Israel from Gaza just within the last week. People wonder why my first suspicion is that this coincides with the Declaration of Independence on May the 14th. However, there certainly is not peace in the land. However, verse 22, some theologians conjecture that that's what that's referring to. There will be a time where no man is needed to stand, watch, and protect his family. As a matter of fact, it can be the other way around because, and even though the woman is the uh, less physical of God's creation, there will be no need for a watchman. Verse 23, Zath 
Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sabbath, the Lord of armies, the God of Israel. As yet they will use this speech in the land of Judah and in the cities thereof when I bring again their captivity. There will be a time where they say, The Lord bless thee, O habitation of justice and mountain of holiness. Mountain of holiness is Jerusalem. As I said a little while ago, it's no surprise to see Israel back in the land but spiritually dead. That's exactly what the Valley of Dry Bones prophesied would happen. Is Jerusalem a mountain of holiness today? No, I would say not. But I would believe that there will be a time when it will be. That would be when the the king of the lineage of David is seated on his throne. And there shall dwell in Judah and itself and in all the cities thereof together farmers and shepherds. For I have satiated the weary soul. I have replenished every sorrowful soul. Upon this I awaked and beheld, and my sleep was sweet unto me. So Jeremiah awakening, being given this word from the Lord, was happy and rejoiced to know what was coming. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. Again, they are about to be led captive out of Jerusalem and out of Judah. But there would be a time where this land was filled with Jews again and with their animals. And it shall come to pass that like as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down and to throw down and to destroy and to afflict. Again, who has brought this judgment upon them? God has because of their disobedience. So will I watch over them to build and to plant, saith the Lord. In those days they shall no more say, it's not our fault, we're suffering because of bad decisions that our parents made. That was a Jewish idiom. The, the fathers have eaten the sour grape, therefore the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, I have cavities because my father ate sugar. It's not my fault. I'm, I'm suffering because of somebody else's. Uh-uh. They will not say that. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man that eateth the sour grape, the t- his teeth shall be set on edge. By the way, a contemporary, I would say at about the same period of time, was making this very same prophecy to the exiles in captivity in Babylon. Don't say you're suffering for the sins of your father and grandfather. You are guilty of what you are being punished for. Ah, here's the culmination of verse 31. Here's where we get the name of what we call the last 27 books of the Bible. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the church, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Notice no lost tribes, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant, though they broke, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. Remember, Moses wasn't even down from Mount Sinai. He hadn't even brought the tablets back yet. And they were already breaking the law. They were having a big idol-worshiping orgy, drunken orgy down at the foot of Mount Sinai. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. 
After these days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts, and I will write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Who is he speaking to here? Verse 31, verse 32 tells you. Specifically to Israel and Judah. Remember, even the gospel message that we know so well was to the Jew first and also to the Greek, also to the Gentile. In other words, I will give them a law not written on stone, not engraved on stone, which they could not keep. The law could not save anybody. All the law could do was make us aware of our sin. It's not that the law was flawed. It's that we are flawed. Our flesh is weak. God establishes His rules of righteousness. We are incapable of keeping them. It's a good thing the Lord kept them for us. And He has passed on to us His righteousness by faith in His finished work. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they're all going to know me. Who? House of Israel, house of Judah. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, when is that culminated? Well, Daniel told us that at the end of the 70th week of Daniel is when the finality would be of their transgression, and God would make an end of the sins of Israel and Judah and make reconciliation for iniquity. And at that point, He would establish everlasting righteousness. All the prophecies would be fulfilled, and the Most Holy One, the Messiah, would be anointed in the most holy place. Now, Ezekiel 36, again, a contemporary, preaching the same message. Look what Ezekiel is saying. It's, a, it's almost like a carbon copy of what we are studying in Daniel. We see also in Ezekiel. Chapter 36, verses 19 through 29, he says this. God says, I scattered them among the heathen. And they were dispersed through the countries according to their way, and according to their doings, I judged them. In other words, they got what they deserved. They disobeyed me. I warned them in Deuteronomy. I warned them in Leviticus. They did it anyway. I punished them. I kept my word. But I had pity for my holy name, which the house of Israel hath profaned among the heathen whither they went. God's reputation is on the line. Quite frankly, ladies and gentlemen, it's not because we deserve heaven. It's, because we're not, it's not because we're lovable. It's because of God's incredible grace and mercy that we receive the gift of eternal life. Well, Israel certainly didn't deserve any of the promises being kept to them. But God had made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God's reputation was on the line. Therefore, say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I'm not doing this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the heathen, whether you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among all the Gentiles, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you right before their very eyes. Well, how's that going to happen? Verse 24. I will take you from among the Gentile nations, and I will gather you out of all countries, and I will bring you 
into heaven. No, into your own land. And I will sanctify you. And you shall be clean from all your filthiness, from all your idolatry. I will cleanse you. Now notice what we just read in Jeremiah 31.31. Same thing as in Ezekiel. A new heart will I give you. And a new spirit will I put within you. Again, right now they are in the land, but they're spiritually dead. I will take away that heart of stone, and I will give you a living heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. Is that relatively clear? I think so. And you shall be my people. And I will be your God. Thus saith the Lord God in the day that I will have cleansed you from all your iniquities. I will also cause you to dwell in the cities. And in the waste cities shall be rebuilt. And the desolate land, the land that I drove you out of, will be filled and will be tilled. Where it has lain desolate for 2,000 years it lay desolate. Thank Mark Twain when he toured the Holy Land in the mid-1800s said it was a malaria-infested wasteland. It was uninhabited even then. And they shall say, the Gentiles will be amazed at what has happened. This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate ruined cities are become fenced and inhabited. This has not happened fully yet, but I believe it will. I may be crazy, but I'm pretty sure that I'm not. Here's a summary. We'll wrap up tonight's study. Remember, the church was hidden in the Old Testament. Jesus talked about this in the mystery parables of the kingdom of heaven, God's rule on earth. Paul was given the privilege of revealing the details of this mystery. What's a mystery? A truth that had prior to this been unrevealed. The Jews, after they were taken into captivity, and even after Zerubbabel let a return, even after Nehemiah came back and rebuilt the city, were looking forward to the Messiah, but they were confused as there were two very different means of identifying when the Messiah would come. Jesus should have clarified that early in His ministry, when he came back to his hometown synagogue, was given the privilege of speaking. He read from Isaiah 61, which was a prophecy about the Messiah, then stopped right in the middle of a sentence and rolled up the scroll and handed it back to him and said, this part is fulfilled right before your very eyes. And he stopped right before the day of God's vengeance. And then following that, You see the promises of God's blessing, what we would call the millennial reign of Christ, what the Jews call the age of the Messiah. John adds to this, saying that he came unto his own, but his own received him not. Fortunately, this didn't take God by surprise, as we talked in past weeks, Mother's Day specifically, that all of this was part of God's plan of redemption. 
Now, there was no redeeming quality for Israel rejecting her Messiah, just disobedience. However, it was necessary that Jesus could be both the Lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the world, fulfilling Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, and also the King of kings and Lord of lords, ruling and reigning in power and glory. Jesus added some light to this in His parables the week of His crucifixion. And ultimately, Paul goes into great detail clarifying this in Romans 9, 10, and 11. We're out of time, but I can't stop at this point. Let me take just another minute. Paul had not been to Rome. There were Christians there. There were churches there. The Jews had been driven out of Rome for about, what, 10, 11 years. During that period of time, the churches had become anti-Semitic. Understand the purpose of many of the epistles. Galatians was written to Gentiles to stop acting like Jews. One of the reasons that Romans was written was to stop hating your Jewish brethren now that they are back in Jerusalem. Paul gives a vast overview, a synopsis of the entirety of Scripture in 16 chapters. The first eight chapters are doctrine. We wind up in chapter 8 with being reminded that we're going to go through a lot of struggles. But don't worry at those times when it seems like God has abandoned us. He really hasn't. Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good to those that love the Lord who are the called according to His purpose. You go down to the last half of chapter 8. We are reminded that, that we cannot lose the love of Christ. No matter what we go through, don't think that we have lost His love. God's promises are without repentance. Where does Israel fit in? Didn't God revoke His promises to Israel? No. Chapter 9 deals with God's sovereign calling. Not that Israel was worthy, but God chose to work through this people that are very easy to dislike, this little bitty nation right in the middle of the Gentile world this nation of slaves brought out of bondage in Egypt. Chapter 10, we see Israel currently. It's not the keeping of the law. In fact, the law can't be kept. Now, for everyone, Romans 10, 9, and 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. In fact, Romans chapter 13 reminds us that it's not just to the Jew, but also to the Gentile at this point in time. Or verse 12, I'm sorry. Acts, Romans. I know Romans in here somewhere. Should have put it up on the screen. Romans is before 1 Corinthians, right? All right. I'll get there. 
For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Then we get to chapter 11. Paul begins, verse 1, Hath God cast away his people? No! Talks about even now there is a remnant. We get down to the famous passage of the wild olive tree being grafted into the natural olive tree. Some of the branches of the natural olive tree were broken off. Why? Because of their unbelief. God's plans have not been foiled. So we read in John 1 a minute ago, He came into His own, but His own has reasoned Him not. Well, was God stumped? No. We see this revelation of the church age, which was hidden in the Old Testament, and what we are currently living in. God makes a statement, Hey, this has been, I've used this for good to some degree now. Imagine how much better it is going to be when the natural olive tree is a part of the team, so to speak. Verse 25, I would not have you, brethren, to be ignorant of this mystery. Again, what's a mystery? A truth that had been hidden up until now, that you should be wise in your own conceits, that right now there is a partial blindness among Israel until, I would say, the completion of the church age, the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And then all Israel shall be saved. Now, is every Jew going to be in heaven? Absolutely not. But God is not done with Israel. There will be that time, Zechariah 14 talks about, when it looks like it's all over. They're going to cry out this prayer in Hosea 6.1. Jesus said, you remember when He was leaving the temple the last time and He'd preached that scathing sermon, chapter 23, said, I'm leaving your house desolate. You'll not see Me again until you cry out, Blessed is He that cometh in the name of the Lord. Well, it's going to look like it's all over. It's going to look like the Jews are finally finished and Satan will have gotten his way. The city of Jerusalem will be half taken, houses rifled, women ravished. When all of a sudden, Zechariah 14 is fulfilled. King Jesus comes back, this time in power and glory. And those that are there, those that have survived. Zechariah 13 says that two in three will not survive that last seven-year period. Ezekiel 20 says that those Jews outside the land of Israel, only one in ten shall survive. But there will be that remnant, and all Israel at that time shall be saved. There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, shall turn away the ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are your enemies right now, in other words, the Jews hate you Christians, they're, pursuing, they're persecuting you. But as concerning the elect, God's election, chapter 9, they are beloved for the Father's sake. Has God changed His mind about Israel? Nope. The gifts and callings of God are without repentance. So that one minute turned into five. But understand, God reiterates here that only 
when there's no more seashore and the sea overcompasses the land, which based upon God's promise to Noah, that'll never happen. Only when the sun and the moon and the stars quit functioning, only then will I cast away Israel. In other words, the point is, you can write it down and count on it. It's not going to happen. Again, the days come that the city shall be rebuilt. Jerusalem shall be rebuilt. Then you get specific geographical points. From the northwest tower to the northeast tower, around the Kidron Valley, the Hinnom Valley, and the Central Valley, all of that is going to be restored and shall be not just restored, but shall be whole. Now listen to this last point because this is important. Jerusalem is going to be restored. and We think about where it is now. And it shall be holy unto the Lord. I'd say it doesn't qualify yet. And it shall not be plucked up nor thrown down anymore forever. Jerusalem has been attacked 52 times, been captured 44 times, been besieged 23 times. Part of it has been destroyed 40 times. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem, there's literally one level of history built upon another level of history, built upon another level of history. We know of at least two times, possibly three, if you count the Bar Kokhba revolt in 135 A.D., that the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. God said, it's never going to happen again after I've kept my promise. Now, we know it happened in 70 A.D., so this couldn't have been speaking about pre-70. Logically, can it? Am I wrong? So the city will be holy and the city will never be destroyed again forever. We know it was destroyed in 70. We know it was destroyed in 135 A.D. Israel was not a nation from 70 on. In fact, they were a vassal nation even then. They're back in the land May the 14th, 1948, but they're spiritually dead. Jerusalem is not holy yet, and they are certainly not living in a time of peace and they certainly don't have a king of the lineage of David ruling and reigning. I believe that this is all literal. I believe it will literally happen. We'll pick up again next week in chapter 32.